if they believe that the government is bad, so the government can't take any positive actions. So then people's response to that of living in this state of poverty, essentially, not just economic poverty, you know, like social poverty and, and just everything. This is how people react to that. And then we go, oh, that's just natural. That's just the way it is. Like, no, we created this. We created this system. We, we can do something about it, but you, you're not doing that because you believe it's harmful. It is very, it's very bizarre to me that this, our systems are set up to create this world and then we pretend like this is just the way it is. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and in corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Jackson Winter about the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. Jackson is co-writer and editor for PEGS Institute, which is a project to demystify and explain some commonly misunderstood realities of the modern world. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Jackson, but it's also the first in a larger four-part series on Polanyi's book. Jackson and I are two smart layperson MMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and MMT. Parts three and four are with Asad Zaman, a PhD economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic. I'll summarize the book more at the beginning of part one with Professor Zaman, but very briefly. The Great Transformation is the centuries-long history of how our current rentier capitalism came to be and what preceded it. It reveals that much of what we believe to be inevitable and unchangeable, natural, about our society is in fact a deliberate choice. Those who benefit most from this system, the rentiers, those who collect rent, would like nothing more than for the rest of us those who pay rent to believe this system and their unending greed to be natural, inevitable, unchangeable, and indeed best for everybody. Now I'd like to describe my journey to the book and this interview. I first interviewed Professor Zaman in November 2020. Our topic was his personal story and after decades immersed in neoclassical economics, his journey to MNT and real-world economics. For the past year, I've been working with a professor to create a free online course centered around his many video lectures. Each lecture is split into 15-minute segments, and each segment is accompanied by a very substantial 5-8 to eight question quiz. I compose the quizzes with lots of assistance and support from my recent guest, Jonathan Wilson. The course is titled Historical Context for Real-World Economics, which is produced by Activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. I look forward to sharing it with you. 
As we get closer, I'll release part three with Jonathan, where we spend the entire time talking about the course. Patrons of Activist MMT can hear the whole thing right now. Hint, hint. The first five lecture chapters for the course are completed, but four of them remain in draft form and still require a good amount of work. I'm currently resolving detailed feedback I've received from the professor. However, we've already decided on the next seven chapters for the course, which are all on Polanyi's book. You'll find a link to the seven video lectures, plus several additional resources by Professor Zaman in the show notes of part one with the professor, coming in two weeks. I purchased the 2001 edition of the book and read the forward, introduction, and first chapter. It blew me away. What most of us think is the foundation of our society and economy is actually not the foundation. There's another one below it. A few days ago, I released a snippet of my first impressions of the book after having read only this much. It comes from part three with Jonathan, which is not yet released. At the same time, I saw Jackson on Twitter say he's studying the history of the commodification of labor, which, very briefly, is threatening the poor with starvation and death unless they work the unending greed machines of the rich. I told Jackson to consider Polanyi's book as a critical source on the topic. Jackson said he would add it to his infinite reading list. I urged him to just read the introduction and the foreword, and two days later, he finished the book. I was still only at chapter one, but now that he had thrown down the gauntlet, I was determined to finish. We scheduled an interview for five days later on Wednesday morning my time. He's in Australia, I'm on the west coast in the US, so we're 16 hours apart. I was also on winter break. Because reading the book was also in preparation for the course, I had to write lots of notes. By Monday morning, I knew there was no way I was going to finish. We postponed by 15 hours from 8 a.m. my time to 11 p.m. I went into reading hibernation for two days straight, and my family slid pizza slices under my bedroom door every few hours. I finished the book at 9 p.m., two hours before our scheduled start time. And now, on to my conversation with Jackson Winter. Enjoy. Um, I just finished two hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) Holy hell. (laughs) Really powered through it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I wrote, you know, I, I'm, um, I'm preparing to do, uh, create quizzes for seven lectures on this book. Yeah. So I had to write, I had to write lots of notes. So I wrote like 28 pages of notes. So. Wow. I was really, I mean, you, you kind of tricked me because you said I read it in two days and I was like, I don't know how the hell you read this in two days. <laughs> I think it was like, uh, I stayed up pretty late on the first day to get to like chapter seven. And then I just did nothing else on day two, mm-hmm. literally just read straight through. Oh, that's cool. Well, uh, hello. Nice to finally kind of meet you. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is going to be interesting. I mean, I think we're our heads are both kind of exploding and and drinking from a fire hose and yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, where the hell do we even start? I guess, <laughs> I guess. Um, um, why, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce yourself and and maybe pegs and then uh, 
Yeah, sure. And then um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, so my name's Jackson Winter. So some point uh, last year, because of the pandemic, myself and a couple of friends decided, uh, well, one person got us uh, reading about MMT. And then we were trying to read all this stuff and it was very sort of, you know, academic and we were struggling to find uh, stuff that was you know, more for like beginners and, and stuff. So we thought, hang on, we, we're finally grasping this. We should make some short little videos or something just to keep us occupied while we're all locked down because we're, uh, we're in Melbourne, the, the city with the longest lockdown in the world, I believe, mm. which is nice. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we started making videos about that and then we branched out, did a, a couple of other uh, subjects as well. But then all of that sort of escalated, and then I decided this year I'll go and go and study a bachelor's degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, hmm. um, which is a real change from whatever I was doing before. So uh, M- MMT got me into economics. Wow. Are, are you near Bill or Steve? Uh, no, I think Bill is, uh, I think he sometimes comes down to Melbourne. I, I think he's like, he's, he's usually based in Newcastle, which is, uh, uh, New South Wales and, um, and Steve's over in Adelaide. So I'm sort of like right between the two, really. How, how, how far, uh, roughly how far driving between those two areas? Uh, it's, it's going to be at least a day to either of them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, all right. Uh, so before we get into the details of the book, because we could talk forever on that, can you just give a, a brief overview of, of like, I don't know if you heard of the book or not, but, but you certainly weren't considering reading it until I, until I suggested it on Twitter and you, you know, you talked about, can, can you give a brief overview of kind of what you're, you have been reading? Cause you're talking about how you have a, you know, a large, list of books to read um and then how this how you know how this book fits in with the rest of what you're looking at um yeah no i i hadn't uh, heard anything about it i knew nothing about it and you you suggested it and uh you well you suggested reading uh just the the preface and the introduction i think and i read that i was like wow this is all all the stuff that i've been reading it's all right here this is what it's all about um, the stuff I've been reading is, well, currently I'm trying to get through Bill Mitchell and Randall Ray's macroeconomics textbook, basically because mm. I did uh, a macroeconomics subject the last semester at uni and it was all, you know, the neoclassical stuff. So I'm basically trying to unlearn that with the MMT macroeconomics textbook, but also just the stuff around I think I'm I'm trying the the thing that sort of uh, got me going on economics, apart from just the MMT stuff, is uh, we had sort of last year. The thing that fascinated me was everyone sort of stayed locked down in the house broadly because the government said this is the way to deal with it. And where I am, the government had relatively good messaging and communication, and and I found that really interesting that they just sort of did that. And then they gave like an economic incentive to do it as well. They said, everyone stay at home. Here's, here's some money to, to keep it going. And, and it all sort of worked. And I found, I found that like really curious and interesting. And, and, and here's this book saying, uh, you know, basically backing up the, the things that MMT has been saying for the last few decades, saying, yes, government has this 
incredible power and limiting it by putting on a, a gold standard is um, naive at best. So yeah, I, f- I found that really interesting. I think um, Bill Mitchell had another book that sort of had uh, a similar message reclaiming the state, you know, mm. saying here's, here's what we can do if we stop handcuffing ourselves to this these shiny rocks, <laughs> basically. Um, okay, so what 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 was the kind of the first few things that really hit you about the book itself overall? Yeah, so the the first the first few chapters that uh, we're, we're talking about the the gold standard stuff and how that's you know the the evolution of money and that was stuff that I'd already known from MNT and from reading like David Graeber and stuff like that. Um, so I, I, I was I was sort of broadly already across that. the The first chapter that really told me something I didn't already know was uh, I think it was chapter seven was about Spinumland and the oh my um, gosh <laughs> the, I think what do they call it outdoor support or something like that. So basically. Uh, it was broadly like a a minimum income so i've 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 gone and i've gone and tried to look up how this has been portrayed elsewhere since then and yeah so people are saying oh it's a it's a ubi it's sort of not really it's more like a guaranteed minimum income yeah so that was like wow it's it's all here it's incredible they did this hundreds of years ago we we don't need to guess at how how it how it went. We can see how it went, which was um, <laughs> poorly. It didn't go well. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've, like one of the first things I did was because I got so excited reading about this. I was like, why have I not heard about this before? Why is no one else talking about this? Mm-hmm. One of the things, one of my tricks for when I was studying economics is if they teach me some new concept, then I'll just go and search the name of that concept plus uh, Bill Mitchell just to <laughs> see if he's, if he's blogged about it. Because uh-huh. uh, it'll probably just get him you know, telling me the real story uh, pretty quickly so I can just know, is this something I need to remember or not? So I did that, and and he'd only he'd only mentioned it like maybe one or two times on his blog. Um, so I was like, "What's going on here? Is this is this Spinnerman? Um, oh no, I just uh, I think yeah, I think I tried that, and I think like Polanyi in general. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, "This is something. Is this not real? Is this is this book fake or something?" <laughs> so mm-hmm. I went to look up some you know critiques of it to see. And there's people saying, "Oh, Polanyi's wrong about all this and that," but actually, all they were saying was, "Oh, maybe his um, his anthropology was a, a little bit exaggerated, and maybe his solutions were." A little bit overblown. Like the, no one was saying he's a hundred percent factually wrong. They were just saying oh, he's been a little bit generous with the truth there. But mm-hmm. I think his conclusions still still really pan out, even based on the the critiques that I saw. It's like, well, the Spinum land and the guaranteed minimum income. Uh, I think his point still makes sense that it's it's still bad. The problem is not necessarily that a guaranteed minimum income is inherently bad because he did mention, well, there was also laws against unionizing and workers working together, basically. So theoretically, 
we could have the guaranteed minimum income or the basic income or whatever implementation that is, as long as we have a really strong union movement, which um, I don't know that we do in, in America or Australia at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually, I, I'm really interested in asking, I mean, I guess Bill or someone, job guarantee, if instead of what they did with a minimum income, if they did a job guarantee at that time, you know, I, I mean, because even it, it talks about somewhere, I think in the, I don't know if it's in the notes or in the, in the, in the book proper about the Quakers actually, like we're kind of teasing with give people jobs. Yeah. Like the job guarantee and kind of in response to Spienham land. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I think that's and actually, and actually thank you for being, patient we were supposed to have this interview i mean, we're eight hours different i mean you're a day ahead but eight hours behind 24 hours ahead so yeah. and we were supposed to have this interview eight in the morning for me this morning and which was like 12 midnight for you and i couldn't i just there's no way i could finish it i just finished it two hours <laughs> before we started talking and so you know thank you for allowing me to you know being flexible with that so now it i have never done an interview at 11 starting at 11 at night which is what, like one in the afternoon for you or, or something like that, three, three in the afternoon for you? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the, the thing that I think is important about the spin online thing or, or a job guarantee or basic income or whatever it is, is the money alone is not sufficient. The reason that it didn't work is because the workers were exploited, where – the proto-capitalists or, you know, the landowners or whatever it was at the time were saying, okay, well, we don't need to pay our workers now because the government will pay for them or rather the council rates will pay for them in this case. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to just say, okay, let's make sure everyone's got enough money. We also have to say, let's do this extra bit to make sure they have you know, wage protections, or let's make sure they have strong unions so they can advocate for themselves, or let's just make sure they have jobs uh, so they can have their own agency and they can they can set their own rules, basically. So mm-hmm. I think that's the important bit, is even if we say, uh, there are a lot of people saying that his, the Spienumland analysis was based off a report of the time, which was maybe a little fabricated or or whatever but i think the important thing is even if that's true we can still see that it failed and even if it was made to fail the point is that the workers were exploited by their system and if they'd had more agency and more protections then that wouldn't have happened and the the payment could have still worked or maybe not but um it was the payment alone being a standalone solution that was the big problem I, that was part of the problem. I, it was, actually, before I, before I say what I think part of the problem was as well, what's really scary about it is that people were absolutely exhilarated yeah. when it was first implemented. And it re- really reminds me of the passion that people have online with UBI of, of what they envision it giving them, the freedom that they envision for it. And that's what people felt when when the Spienumland basic income or whatever it's called was implemented there was there was an amazingly positive reaction yeah from individuals from humanitarian groups of that this is a wonderful thing it is it is you know helping the, those at the bottom and and that's what's that is like what's really that's part of what's really scary because 
once you start feeling that, you kind of grasp onto that and you don't want to let it go. And you, and it takes much, much longer. I, I think that that was a major part of the problem, that it takes much longer to start to see the negative that comes from that. And a big problem, probably one of the biggest problems, is that there were already efforts to try and distinguish between unemployed and unemployable, meaning those who want a job but don't have one and those who are like disabled or children or elderly. So there were efforts to just make those distinctions. You want to give the unemployed a job. You want to just support the unemployable. And then Spinamlin comes along and says, we're going to give money to everybody. We're going to supplement your wages so that no one has lower than, you know, X total wage or whatever. Yeah. And, and that made it, that made it so that not only were now people threatened with, uh, I'm kind of mixing up things here, but you are currently threatened with starvation. You, the, you know, it's, it is a, an easy thing to threaten people with starvation, setting aside Spinamon just for a moment. It's a cheap thing to, you know, it's a, just a very natural consequence. It's a very easy thing to enforce to make people starve, you know, threaten them with starvation if they don't work. But back in Spinamland, when there was not distinguishing between the unemployed, unemployed and the unemployable, that means that not only being threatened with starvation, but to an extent being threatened with being labeled as unemployable. Because there was there were poor houses that supported the unemployable, the disabled, and you know, a place for them to go. But now there was when there was no distinction between the unemployed and the unemployable, that degraded. I'm not exactly sure even how to word this, but that really degraded the the condition of the unemployed because they were there's no distinction now between unemployed and unemployable if everyone gets it because what the unemployed need is very distinct from what the unemployable need. I, I, that I yeah. don't yeah please rescue me if you, if you know no no about. absolutely yeah I think I think that's that's really the important part is like the thing that's that's always talked about with the job guarantee is there's there's care there it's not just um it's not just money thrown at people to make sure everyone has enough money there's there's a care for like what what is your situation what are your needs what are your capabilities what specifically can we do for you as an individual that's not there when it's just like, oh, you're short on money. Okay, here's the money. Bye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, 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 Spinamland gave people money, at which it, oh, it, it was a, I believe, a period of like forty years. Yeah. And by the end of that time, it resulted in wages being lowered because the employers knew that they were going to be paid for by the state which resulted in people having less incentive to work hard. So it, it, the biggest problem was that it lowered productivity. And so people were going to work just because they had to – people were going to work not because of the joy of working, but just because of having some minimum token of, of having some kind of occupation. And on the other side of it, the employers were struggling now to find people because they were just being given money. 
So the, the major effect of this was that productivity went down, which you know fundamentally with the UBI is you just give people money and that's only one side of the equation. If you don't control both sides of the equation of pro- what they're going to be buying with that money, then you have no control over the process. Yeah, I think like this is this is exactly the scenario of the the natural rate of unemployment is like well people are paid so they're not going to move anywhere to get other work so if you have more work if you want to increase productivity well there's there's no incentive for that to happen. So yeah, it's it's really like it really highlights the the key thing is it's not as simple as just giving people money like I'm I'm trying to take it with it with a bit of a grain of salt because I've my approach has always been well for (laughs) before I sort of understood MMT I I was probably a supporter of of UBI and had to have that beaten out of me a little bit um and then since then since coming to understand it and the more I read about it about UBI and the more I understand like the significant problems with it but uh, but apart from that i've been ubi is bad other basic income solutions guaranteed minimum income uh whatever my usually approach them as being insufficient but not actively harmful Mm -hmm. but now having read this i'm going to take it with a grain of salt but it seems like oh maybe a guaranteed minimum income maybe it's it could be harmful on its own if that's if that's the only thing that we implement if we do it with something else if we do it with like wage protections or uh unions or whatever else then it could be better but yeah i think the fundamental premise is just like just doing that thing on its own having there's no care for its sort of downstream effects is yeah like you said it's you're not balancing the equation it's very, it's very tricky. It, even if it is good, it's a very tricky thing to get it to be that way. Um, do you have a sense of, you know, it's not only that the the program was bad, but it was when when it was like seventeen eighty to eighteen thirty five or something like that, and when it was finally stopped, the reaction to it, it, it was a. Do you have a sense of why it was such an important event in the history of, you know, leading up to the Industrial Revolution and capitalism? Because it was more than just a failed experiment. It was a major milestone in leading to the economy that we have today. Do you have a sense of that? Yeah. So uh, I've been trying to read... Uh, I've been going at it all year and I've got about halfway through that's capital um, marks. Mm. So I've, I've sort of had a bit of a picture of sort of what came after this point. So Marx was writing about factories and, and stuff like that in the early uh, 19th century. So I've, I've sort of already had a bit of a picture of what this evolved into, which was horrifying. I mean, truly nightmarish uh young children working 18 hour days and sleeping on the factory floor next mm. to the furnace so it's <laughs> it's pretty clear that like okay we've gone from this sort of feudalistic there's lots of common land and stuff like that and then we have the enclosure where 
the the lords are given this these patches of land and they they fence them off and there's no there's no commons anymore and then so it that helps everyone to be more efficient and they get more out of the land but they sort of basically create unemployment which didn't uh didn't really exist in the same form that we know it today because if you were if you didn't have a job well that's all right you had common land you had your own patch where you could just subsistence farm so yeah so from going to that enclosing everything making everyone into a worker and then making them unemployed so they all have to go into the cities and they all have to go and work in these factories where i mean exploitation is is too small a word for it it's just uh incredible dehumanization really if um one one of the the great analogies that I I didn't realize until reading Marx was the film Snowpiercer, where there's people basically working as machine parts in that film, and it's like no, that's real. That's not like a a metaphor for for cinema. That's that's real. That sort of really happened in the in nineteenth century industrial England. So yeah, it's and it's really incredible to see sort of how little has changed. It's sort of been dressed up a lot and and there's not children there anymore and we we've put in these little reforms along the way to to make things better. But actually I think I think I think there was quoted in Polanyi's book there was um Reverend Townsend mm who who had a quote about i think you referenced it earlier that like hunger is hunger is the way to make people work and right. and we'll tame the wildest beasts and stuff like that and it's like wow we still get that today don't we we really get like we can't give people comfort we've got to let them starve yeah um because otherwise it'll all break down and actually will it all break down it was sort of working okay yeah, it's it, it still sort of like blows my mind that's yes, uh I think I think Marx and Engels both made a big point about how yes, um capitalism has done a really great job of sort of revolutionizing output and production and we've we've really output a lot more than we did before, but you know, what's the cost? What's the human cost? Right. Uh, yeah, so regarding hunger, I want to go back to industrial revolution but regarding hunger they they were saying that hunger is such an easy way to tame even the strongest man even no no one can everyone is affected by hunger even the strongest person yeah so that's a very easy way to discipline people it's a very easy way to you know to not have to use you know, a, a active force to, to control your people, but what, the, and it was natural. It's a natural consequence of not working is, is to go hungry, but how do they make this natural by going out and deliberately destroying people's capability for providing for themselves. And once that capability was destroyed, then it was natural. It's yeah. like a it's like, it's like, you know, uh, a massive company going into a local, you know, multinational company going to some new local location and and undercharging, you know, charging below their cost until all their competitors are gone. 
and then they're the monopoly. Then they're the only one left. So they're the you know, then they can use their monopoly power to to you know price gouge. So yeah, it's natural if you ignore the fact that they destroyed their capability to create their to autark autarky autarky a u t a r c h y yeah. to the ability to provide for yourself. So they destroyed that ability, and then now it's natural because I mean it is it is natural because they made it that way. Um, regarding the uh, uh, the industrial revolution, you said capitalism like made things, you know, industrial revolution was like the massive machines and, you know, supposedly it, it did the, the work of, of, you know, the work of humans was now kind of made less needed. The work of, we needed less of humans because now we had these big machines, but that's not what happened. What happened was that they needed humans, even more humans to run these machines. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the book, Polanyi says the problem is not the industrial revolution and machines. That's not the problem. The problem is simply our decision to be greedy, yeah, to be hedonistic, and to be hedonistic essentially by enslaving others. I mean, that's my wording. But I mean, he says like self-gain. I think as he said, the problem is not the problem is not the industrial revolution. The problem is the decision to make our primary focus in life self-gain, which to me is hedonism by enslaving others. Yeah, I think you like that's this this book is written in the mid 1940s, so it comes before the the rise of neoliberalism, but like the the thing that you mentioned about autarky and and the the point at the end of the book is exactly what we see today of we create these systems of depriving people of basic needs and then there's a very sort of hands-off approach i think the thing that i learned from from studying uh neoclassical economics is is really there's a very much the impression i got was they really believe that basically any government action is necessarily bad or harmful to the economy there's nothing that, that the government does that doesn't damage the economy in some way. So, so my, my impression at the end of my um, semester of studying neoclassical economics was saying, well, so why, why do we have the government then? I mean, if you believe this, then let's get rid of the government. And mm. then it's the same thing. It's that the, if they believe that the government is bad, so the government can't take any positive actions. So then people's response to that of living in this state of poverty, essentially, not just economic poverty, you know, like social poverty and, and just everything. This is how people react to that. And then we go, Oh, that's just natural. That's just the way it is. Like, no, we created this, we created this system we we can do something about it, but you you're not doing that because you believe it's harmful. It is very, it's very bizarre to me that this our systems are set up to create this world, and then we pretend like this is just the way it is. I I, I think I see it a lot with um, like when people say, you know, socialism or or any, anything that's not capitalism goes against human nature. And we can't we can't have anything nice because basically people are greedy, and I'm sure Polanyi makes makes a point of this, and basically any anthropologist will make the same point that that's just 
that's capitalism. That's just capitalism. We don't see that anywhere else. We only see that happening in capitalism because the system of capitalism creates that and we all respond to it because that's how we succeed in that system. It's not natural human nature. It's natural capitalism nature. <laughs> it forces us to hurt. O- we have to hurt others in order to, to do what's best for us and our family. We have to. Yeah. In order to survive. Yeah. They, we, they create desperation. You know, the, the, a, a saying that I like to say is they create desperation and then punish, punish you for acting desperately or shame you for acting. You know, they make you such that greed is necessary to survive. And then, you know, then they, then they say, oh, well, people are just greedy. You know, they set up that environment. Um, regarding the government being inherently bad, that, that's not what they believe. They, they believe the government is inherently bad when it tries to help people. Because in the beginning of the book, he says, Polanyi says that a self-regulating market requires more government because substantially in order to crush dissent because of how much people have to endure at the hands of self-regulated government. So, so self-regulated government, free market, don't let the government do anything, requires more government. Yeah. In order to serve, you know, what what they need in order to crush in order to crush dissent, in order to force people, average people to have to endure what being commodified, which which I'm, I look forward to getting to that. Um, wh- if you were going to cause people to just be cogs in a machine and not treat them like humans and take their land away and not do anything for them, then they're going to not like that. And then the government comes in and you know, killing independent journalism and, and persecuting whistleblowers like Assange and so on. So just the point of they don't think government is bad. They think government is bad when it helps the people. Yeah, I think I think that was one one of the most incredible things from reading this book was like there's this concept of the invisible hand. And they go on and on about it. And they go, oh, Adam Smith, what a genius. Adam Smith mentioned it like one time. <laughs> it was a passing, mm-hmm. a passing thing in one of his books. But yeah, so this, this invisible hand controlling the market and then the market makes all these decisions. And then you, you look at it a bit closer through reading Polanyi and you go, uh, yeah, it's an invisible hand. It's someone's driving this car blindfolded. Like we're, we're taking our hands off the wheel and we're just driving the economy into a ditch and then going, oh, whoops, the economy <laughs> broke. Like, we, we should be in control of it. And we, we, we create this system, we create this economy and then go, okay, just let it do its own thing. And that's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a car without a driver going full speed. And, yeah, like you mentioned, that trying to help people is, is interfering in that market and – but then we don't say people in the market who interfere with the market are bad or doing the wrong thing. It's only when government does it that they're interfering with the market because the government's some some sort of non-market actor somehow. I, I assume that's because the government has the government being the currency issuer has the most power in the market, the most individual power in the market. So they they don't like that. That's too much control, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, you just said something a moment ago. Oh, yeah. 
interfering with the market. The, it's like, I didn't think of this till just right now, but it's, it's not okay to interfere with the market. It's certainly okay to interfere with the lives of all of those millions of laborers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's the definition of natural. So, I mean, it's, 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 you know, commodification. They're not humans, they're cogs in a machine, which justifies treating them that way. If, if you truly believe that they're not human, then you can treat them as non-human and that's okay because that's natural because you've defined that as natural. So commodification of humans, commodification of land, commodification of money, which that's, that's interesting. Commodification of money is the metalist theory. It's the idea that it's the idea it's it's ignoring credit money it's ignoring state money yeah so i um some some of the other stuff i've been reading lately is is um the commodification of of money and labor and land some of the other stuff i've been reading is about dehumanization and specifically in a sort of uh, dehumanizing language sense so it's not quite the same thing of you know, turning people into a commodity, but also through reading Marx and reading about how currency and money is sort of alienating the worker from the product of their labor. And then reading this and it's like, oh, it's all coming together. It's all sort of fitting together that this this money alienates people from their labor, but they are, they are also now commodified and... They're the product. It's incredible to to see it all sort of fit together. I'm reading all these like disparate things, and then oh, it's all it's all connected. It's all sort of the same thing. Um, this is like the the sense. This is like it brings. This brings a lot of the things that you've been reading yeah. together. Yeah. So the the yeah the the sort of dehumanization of the the human and and even the land as well. The the land, labor, and money, and it's all now commodified, and it's not. There's no humanity there. Everything's a product. Even even stuff like a, when I'm listening to like a, a podcast or something, and I get a lot of ads for like um, iHeartRadio, and they're always stuff like there's one I got about ten times the other day was, uh, oh, do you need to get more out of your workday? Listen to this podcast about these habits you can do to squeeze every minute out of your day, and like that's it. That's mm. that's commodification of labor. You can't even you can't even have like your free time anymore. Every moment you've got to be working and earning, and it's all in service of the market, and it's all subservient to generating more capital. It's like wow, it's really. It's really incredible. <laughs> in, in in the uh, in the in the 2000 election, George W. or whatever George the younger George Bush was in a debate, and some woman said, "I work three jobs, and I you know whatever. I just I life is very difficult. I, I work three jobs just to survive." And then how does Bush respond? Three jobs. Isn't that uniquely American? <laughs> Like that's a great thing. Yeah. Like, like, oh, I'm so proud of you for for you know running yourself a, a satanic mill. I'm yeah. so I'm so proud of you for for destroying your life for the sake of America. You're you're a good person. It's like oh wow. I mean that like kind of says it all. Um, I want to briefly talk about commodification of labor because I kind of feel what that is now, and it's essentially just being treated terribly. 
yeah. just being treated like you're not a human being, being discarded, like you're disposable of, you know, that, that you, you do a great job for, for a lot, for years. And then some, something very minor and unrelated happens. That's whatever misunderstood or something. And then you are just dismissed immediately. No questions, no questions of you, no questions of the people that you work with. Just you're completely dismissed. No warning, no nothing. That is being discarded like you are a, a disposable piece of plastic. That is commodification. That yeah. is being commodified. You have no rights. You have no recourse. You have no union. You have no benefits. You have you, you can work for you know years and do a, a really good job, and then just just boom out of the blue, no justification. You're you're discarded, and all that work was for naught. You know, there's no there's no. Um, what do you call it when you work at a place for a long time? There's no tenure, no yeah. um, history or whatever. That's what commodification is. That's what commodification of labor is. That's what it feels to be commodified. It's just simply being treated like you are not a human being. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of this. Like there's a, there's a lot of talk in the moment about the subreddit anti-work. And, mm. and there's a lot of stuff like that getting posted where someone says, all right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to... I'm going to quit or I'm going to demand more money or something like that. And they post their messages with, with their boss who talks to them as if like, you know, you do what I say. I'm, I'm the, I am God here. You, you can't, you can't argue with me. What do you, what do you mean you're standing up for your rights? That's, that's not how we do things here. Like they, they really don't believe they haven't considered that there's a human being there even if it's someone that they spend eight hours a day with every day and mm -hmm. talk to as if they're a friend but when it comes to the the sort of the money aspect or the the commodity aspect their humanity is completely discarded mm -hmm. and and similar with the land as well like it's it's something that I've I've had a relatively um, privileged exposure to this, but it's a thing where I've been I've been evicted from rental properties just because uh, the landlord has decided they want to move back in or something like that, and that's fine. That's their right and their prerogative. But if I didn't if I didn't have the the resources to say to go somewhere else and find a, a different rental property. I could be made homeless. I could just be like discarded from society just because this is the landlord's commodity. But to me, yeah. it's, it's my house. It's my home. I don't own yeah. it, but you know, this is the place where I live. This is where my home is. And not just threatened with hunger, threatened with homelessness. Yeah. And like, that's, I know the, a home is not a commodity to the landlord. And, and I understand that transaction, but like it's just not even considered. It's not. It's not a part of the equation at all. It's. It's got like a sentimental value to me that can't possibly enter the landlord's mind because it's. It's the. It's just a commodity to them. Yeah, it's like uh, with the. Uh, it's horrible that they do that, but it's worse that they're allowed to do that, and the same with the boss who treats the worker badly like you were just saying it's horrible that they do that it but it's more horrible that they're allowed to do that and i would also bet that they are treated that way from a higher level i would i would bet 
and uh, and and the the concept of like the job guarantee gives you the ability to stand up to your boss because the problem of being treated like a commodity is you can't stand up to the person who did that to you who tells you you you're gone you can't stand up to them but they also can't stand up to their bosses and like you know they they can't stand up to the ceo of the company the ceo of the company can't stand up to to uh, this not like like a school is a better example you can't stand up to the teacher can't stand up to administration even if they're in a union to a significant extent they can't stand up to like the principal the principal can't stand up to the superintendent the superintendent can't stand up to the board of education the board of education can't stand up to the local government and all the way up to the federal government there's there is a like at every single level there is like this boss that told this person to leave in a sense they're being able to vent their frustrations onto yeah. that worker is a like a release it's a re- it's a it's a way for them to vent to be able to take out their frustrations on their workers because very likely they get it they get it themselves as well and the and actually this is this is kind of a tangent but the idea of people don't have power so therefore we give them the f- we give them fantasies of having power with video games with you know grand theft auto it, that is an amazing game where you can feel incredibly powerful you yeah. can take a car run over run over somebody and then when the cops come you can run over the cops and then when the ambulance come you can run over the ambulance you can shoot them you know you feel you have the fantasy of being powerful and i'm pretty sure that pornography is related to this as well I have a feeling that that started around the Industrial Revolution or somewhere in there, whereas the the fantasy of power. And so it's all these, you know, people can't be powerful, so we give them the fantasy of feeling powerful. So that was a bunch of stuff. But Yeah, no, I think uh, sort of another thing, I, I think Polanyi sort of uh, put me on a bit of a path towards this, but I, I finally just twigged what um, about cultural hegemony and so i started reading about that i'm like oh this this is really what it's all about so you mentioned like the hierarchy of there's the the teacher and the principal and the superintendent and whatever all the way up to the president but then the president has a lot of power but actually the president's beholden to a bunch of other people as well and we follow this hierarchy up but there's there's not like one person sitting at the top calling all the shots what they're actually beholden no, to. It's a circle jerk once you get up to that level. <laughs> the donors, the representatives who get paid by the donors and so on. But yeah. Yeah. And um, um, what they're actually all beholden to is capital. Is like it's we, we all have to follow these rules for this for this sort of god of the economy or, mm. or our own economy, our own um, income and our own wealth. And that's that's what it's all about. Um so I, I started reading about cultural hegemony and then I'm like, okay, so there's the Queen of England. She's in charge of the whole country. Uh, essentially, she's, I mean, the the mythos is that she's uh, appointed by God somehow anyway. Yes. Um, but then actually she's not really in charge at all. If she were to exercise any of that power, it wouldn't go well. There'd be a huge scandal and probably be the end of the monarchy. So... 
So who is in charge? No one's telling the queen what to do, but the queen can't tell anyone else what to do. Well, the 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 person who's in charge is the invisible hand. It's it's mm. the market. It's capital, and we're all just beholden and subservient to that. And like you said before about um, the government can't interfere to to benefit people because benefiting people hurts the economy in some way, or at least they believe it does. And then you know the economy must be must come first at all times which is um, incredible. Well, I mean, the commodification of people is required because a self-regulating market cannot exist unless it commodifies land and labor and money. Yeah. If it, if it cannot do all three of those things, then it cannot exist. And at the same time, which is a huge part of the book, a huge point that the book makes, at the same time, by commodifying people and land and money, must necessarily destroy, he uses the term annihilate, must necessarily annihilate those people and that land. Yeah, I think it's it's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably a bit of a naive way to phrase it, but it just like sucks the, the soul out of everything to, to get up these these numbers of dollars or pounds or whatever, whatever it's measuring, it's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of one of the most incredible things is I sort of can't even comprehend that there was a time when it wasn't like this. <laughs> we just, we just treated people like human beings and, you know, took care of each other and stuff instead of trying to milk every dollar out of everyone and everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the idea of commodifying people. It's like a, it's a gamble. It's like if you're commodifying another person, then you're simply taking a gamble that you're not going to be one of those people that are commodified. Like, you know, it's, it's a very strange kind of lottery, I guess. Like if you're, if you're choosing to commodify the vast majority of people for your own service, then Obviously, you do not want to become part of that class, right? Like you, you are choosing to. You have to. You have to create a distinction between you and your class, and those who are being commodified. And like you know, basically the the few and the many, the many and the few, of like death to the many is actual death. Death to the few is like becoming part of the many. Because they see those people as those people are worthy of commodifying. I'm an actual human being. Yeah, I mean that that's what we see in like having uh in in Australia we have like the unemployment uh benefit is considerably below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a lot of argument against that, but then they're not gonna change it because having those people in poverty there's someone else that's that's the threat you you've got to comply with with the command of the invisible hand because if you don't you'll be one of them you'll be cast out of society essentially you'll be under the poverty line and you don't want to be that and Mm -hmm. and to to challenge that puts you more in danger of being one of those people 
of of being cast out from society. Yeah, what another book I've I've read recently is uh, um, it's from the pedagogy of the oppressed, and he's talking. He's, 